0: you're listening to the journey to impact fireside chat series with gino borges curator of the poetry of impact a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact as a part of the poetry of impact the journey to impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact here you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self limitations and societal barriers to co create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together.
1: Hi, I'm Gino Borges, curator of the Journey to Impact podcast series. <laughs> Joining us today is Tim Ring. Tim is the co founder and co chairman of Team Fund, which brings necessary medical technologies to low resource geographies such as India and sub Saharan Africa. Tim is was previously chairman and CEO of C.R. Bard, a leader in developing medical technology. Tim is also serving on the board of directors for Quest Diagnostic and Becton Dickinson. Tim is also a member of Tonic, a global network of impact investors that invest in positive social and environmental change. If you'd like to learn more about Tonic and what they have to offer, I invite our listeners to reach out as I'm glad to make an introduction for you. I'm also proud to announce that this conversation with Tim is brought to you as part of a partnership between Poetry of Impact and Tonic. Welcome, Tim. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, Tim, I see. I mean, I love that story about the advice that you were given um, at an early age about to choose something that you know that's growing, and it just happened to be healthcare at that particular period of time. I'm guessing there was other sort of growing fields as well. Um, What in particular kept you in the healthcare space, like beyond it just being a growing business sector and besides you being young, young of age, starting a family and wanting to do good? Was there anything particular about the space itself that had, you know, that kept you getting out of bed and saying, yes, I want to do this?
2: You know, it's interesting. and, And I've had that conversation later on in life with my kids as they've gotten older. Um, And, uh, you know, one of the things I've told them is, look, I'm CEO of a healthcare company. We make products that can help save and enhance people's lives. Um, I wouldn't, it would be more difficult for me to do this in another industry like tobacco or, um, you know, things like that. You just, in in my view, just speaking for myself, -hmm. That wouldn't be nearly as motivating as being in the business of trying to help people.
1: Yeah. And was there, and now since you've been in the space for a significant period of time and um, you went from sort of this big, you know, organization to now of a sudden starting your own uh, platform. Was it out of that experience that, that you realized that parts of the globe just weren't receiving access to health care that you were providing previously to, like, you know, organized, you know, bureaucracies, uh, per se?
2: Well, you know, clearly, I became more aware of that um, inequality that exists uh, throughout my career. But Team Fund, which stands for Transforming Equity and Access for MedTech, was actually my wife, Catherine's idea. Uh, Catherine's co-founder, she's an attorney, ran, started and ran Morgan Lewis's life sciences practice for 28 years before she retired. And one of the things she did um, after she retired is she was on the board of a foundation that had a lot to do with social impact, at least a big portion of what that foundation did was uh, uh, social entrepreneurs and um uh, assisting those those people and because she was one of the founding board members they did some orientation events at the united nations and jp morgan um, etc and after like her third event over dinner one night this is wild this is back in 2014 while I was still running bard she said you know i've gone to a couple of these things now and i've seen consumer products companies and Financial services companies. I didn't see any med tech companies at any of this. Why is that? Mm. And I said, well, it's because you know it's going to take a while for us to make money in a lot of these parts of the world, um, and and that's why there's not a lot of investment. And she then posed a question to me uh, that was, well, how do you feel as a human being about? More than half the world's population not being able to get access to the products that you make. Hmm. And I said, Well, as a human being, I don't feel great about that. But as a public company CEO, this is what I get paid to do. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, You know, you and I have been pretty fortunate in our lives. Why don't we try to do something about that? And literally, that's where the concept of Team Fund was hatched uh, from her I- idea. Um, so she did a lot of the, kind of heavy lifting and, and spade work. And, and quite honestly, I thought, okay, well, we'll start a little foundation or something like that and, and, and take a whack at this. And she said, look, you don't know what to do here. If you knew how to figure this out, you would have solved it already. We need to go talk to people who really know what the issues are and understand it a lot better. So we didn't call it a listening tour at, at the beginning, kind of ended up being one, you know, a year later. But as I would travel around or we would travel around, we sought out meetings with people to understand what they were doing in low-resource settings. And we both of us had a medtech background, so we kind of focused in that area. Um, And as a result of that, over the course of about 12 months, we met with over 200 people. We met with other funds, other impact funds. We met with nonprofits. We met with foundations. We met with governments, uh, current and former ministers of health, a couple of presidents of countries, actually, um, and conclude at universities, anybody that we felt had more knowledge uh, than we had, which was quite a few, (laughs) frankly, um, uh, to try to learn and understand what the gaps were and became very apparent to us that there was. Um, a funding gap, there was an expertise gap, um, and, and you know, kind of an entrepreneurial innovation gap, uh, and concluded that the best way for us to have the greatest amount of impact quickly would be domiciled in the U.S. to create a structure where there was a, a nonprofit with a for-profit fund. Uh, and the reason for that... Um, was we felt that a lot of low-resource-setting areas were very accustomed to grants and donations, and we didn't feel that was a sustainable business model. So we felt that we needed to invest with a for-profit, private-sector mentality, help these companies learn how to make money and scale so that they could become more sustainable on their own and that that was a better long-term solution than trying to write up a grant proposal for the next, you know, grant. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, and I I should add that early on, once we decided to do this, we went to one of the world's largest consulting management consulting firms, told them, this is what we had in mind. They assigned a person to us uh, pro bono to help us think this through. Um, The person still with us today um and then once we had kind of concluded that the for-profit nonprofit model was the right model we went to two different law firms um one on the nonprofit side one on the for-profit side got everybody in a room so this is what we think we need to have let's figure out a way to to do that so um The nonprofit kind of came together first. We actually got the government approval for the 5 c 3 before we, uh, or or a lot faster than we had anticipated. Uh, And then the fund came together. It's a $30 million impact fund. Uh, A couple of years later, we actually made two program-related investments out of the nonprofit um, that we then transferred into the fund. And the reason we did that is we felt if we had uh, real-life examples of how this was all going to work, um, it would be a lot easier to explain to people when you're raising money than a hypothetical um, explanation. Um, so that, that actually came together, again, in 2015 is when it started with the nonprofit. The, the fund um, we started raising in uh, kind of the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, uh, did a first close in uh, the fall of 18, final close in the fall of 19. Um, uh, and, and uh, y- you know, I was actually doing this while I was still the chairman and CEO of Bard, which uh, you can imagine the board, you know, you go to your board and, and you disclose, hey, I'm going to do this. And they're like, well, wait a minute. Isn't investing in medical device technology companies what you're supposed to be doing in the in the job that you get paid for. And, uh, so we had to outline, you know, different conflicts and, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. but it was, uh, they were very supportive of, of me doing that. Um, it became very clear to me as a public company CEO, a- again, with a for-profit, you know, you have an obligation shareholders to shareholders to make money and maximize investments. I didn't even have enough money to invest in the stuff that I, that we wanted to invest in kind of in the developed world, let alone being able to set a, aside enough money to focus on developing products for the developing world, right? It just, it was just too difficult to try to do within the four walls of a of a for-profit company. And and clearly in that and to put it in perspective, BARD was about a four billion dollar revenue company. But even when I spoke with the CEOs of the largest medical device companies in the world, they had the same challenge same problem so it clearly was an unmet need that wasn't being addressed by the private sector um thus the the need for an organization like team fund um to bring all those things together and try to fill those gaps
1: so tim give me an example of what's actually happening on the ground as a result of team fund like nay like what is a portfolio company or how is it sort of structured take us from a to Z on how how you guys actually go look for opportunities, you secure the opportunities, and then like what's your involvement afterwards? And then sure. what kind of impact are they actually having on the ground that like a bard just wouldn't be able to access that because of its own institutional imperatives and its own organizational imperatives?
2: Yeah, well, you know, the interesting thing when, when we started this, I actually thought finding... Uh, enough of the right kind of companies to invest in was going to be a challenge. Because, you know, as a CEO, you have a whole business development organization around the world. They're turning over opportunities all the time. Um, you know, you would have expected after 15 years, I would have heard about some of them. Um, <laughs> and, and I just didn't hear about a lot of those. Right. And um, so we would have thought that was the problem uh, initially. Um, turns out that's not the problem. There's a lot of really good companies. We do a pipeline meeting once a week. Um, in fact, we just did it this morning. Um, and I think last year we looked at, we reported to our board, um, in December, we looked at something like 412 companies, something like that. Um, uh, and we have a a process. So the, the mission of team fund is to enhance patient access to medical technology in low resource settings. So that's kind of where we start, right? And there have been examples where, you know, maybe you talk to somebody, say, in Silicon Valley and like, oh, yeah, I got this great technology. I really want to move it to Africa or I really want to move it to a low resource setting. That's really what I want to do. But all my investors right now want me to invest in the developed market, you know, in the U.S. or Europe or something like that. And we say no to those kind of companies. So the companies we invest in can be anywhere. They don't have to be in those geographies in terms of their domicile, Mm -hmm. um, but they have to have a commercial presence in that those those geographies need to be an important part of their commercial strategy. Uh, We only invest in the fund in commercial stage companies. Um, So the R&D risk, if you want to think about that, has been taken off the table. On the nonprofit side, we do give grants um, to earlier stage, pre-commercial companies, uh, but but for the fund, uh, and we're trying to also demonstrate that you can invest in these kind of countries, uh, companies in these in these markets and make money. So this is not. Um, uh, th- we look at market returns in in, in the fund. And we do believe that the kinds of things we look at, uh, much of which involve digital health, AI, and that kind of thing, the reason being there's not nearly enough doctors, nurses, or uh, community healthcare workers to take care of the populations in these geographies. In fact, I heard someone give a talk. They said there's more Ethiopian doctors in Chicago than there are in Ethiopia. Um mm-hmm. So you need to look for technologies that can enhance the skills and capabilities of lesser trained healthcare workers to do more for patients. So digital health and AI play right into that. The other interesting thing, and this is across the the board with most medical technologies, medical technology, medtech, typically focus on non-communicable diseases. Now the diagnostic testing. Which is considered a medical device focuses on communicable diseases clearly, like what we're seeing with this pandemic, you know, COVID tests, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but the treatment and intervention really uh, are focused more around non-communicable diseases. And as these geographies' populations age, because they're pretty young uh, populations right now, for the most part, a lot of these kind of lifestyle type diseases start to uh, infiltrate those populations and that's where more med tech can can be used so the uh, the portfolios in the portfolio now we have we have four companies um one is a uh, one started as a, a diabetes diagnostic uh platform that uses a, a smartphone um but we saw that as a platform that you could do many more tests off of still using a smartphone. Uh, that company started in India. They actually got a U.S. approval last year, um, the first one uh, ever to be uh, approved for smartphone capability for hba one c detection. And it's those kind of technologies, and that's why we think the fund can give a return, because if you can do uh, treat a great number of patients in these low-resource settings, you know, when you think about where healthcare is going in developed markets, you know, what does a CVS want its minute clinic worker to do, right? To do more for patients in a less expensive, lower cost, more convenient setting. So, a lot of these technologies can be used either kind of in a direct-to-consumer way or outside of a hospital setting. So those are the kind of platforms that we, we look for. So that's one. The second one is uh, a cardiovascular diagnostic company started by a cardiologist in India. Uh, they make a little device that is uh, that, that company. The first company, by the way, his name is Janicare. Um, this company that I'm describing now is called Tricod. Uh, and what they have is a little device that connects to the back of any EKG machine. And through a combination of AI and doctors on call 24-7, they can um, basically tell somebody if they're having a heart attack or it's something else uh, in less than a minute. So um, even, again, in developed markets, we have a, healthcare, a large healthcare system in the U.S. that invested in TeamFund, and they said, look, in our rural settings, we don't always have healthcare workers that know how to read EKGs really well, right? So having this other capability would be very helpful. Again, another example of a technology that that can leapfrog. Um, You know, that technology right now, they do 9,000 reads a day, Um, you know, around the world. They're in Africa, India. Uh, They've just started in China. They do not have a U.S. approval yet, but we'll be working towards that. Um, so that that uh, is another example. Um, we have a, a third example of, a, of an investment in a company called um, DocsApp, which is kind of like a telehealth company um, uh, in India. Uh, and they've got a great situation of they've got 5 million users. Um, very much as telehealth works here, uh, the difference there is while they're on the call uh, with a doc, a patient in uh, a doctor conversation, if the doc understands, hey, this patient needs a specialist of some type, they can ping someone within doc, another clinician in the doc's app network while they're on this call and say, I, I need a whatever, endocrinologist. Mm-hmm. And while they're on the call, the endocrinologist, if there's one available, will ping back, hey, I can take the call when you're finished and real time switch the patient over to the specialist. They also have a, a direct link into, um, uh, into uh, pharmacies and uh, diagnostic labs for testing they can do on a call. So, so that's another one. Uh, and then the last company we have, um, which is a terrific company, is called Forus, F-O-R-U-S Health which is an ophthalmology company, Um, and and their mission is uh, they want to prevent uh, 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 or they want to be able to avoid preventable blindness um, around the world. And and they, if if you think about this hub-and-spoke kind of model, they had a fundus camera where they could train somebody how to take a picture of an eye. You know, three years ago, that would get beamed somewhere to an ophthalmologist who would do the read and then come back with the diagnosis. Now they've got over 4 million images in their database. And anytime you can get a digital image of high quality and consistency, you can use AI to read and diagnose a lot of that image. So they're now up to only having to uh, send about 40% of their images to an ophthalmologist. And the AI does a lot of the other read uh, for that. Um, And then the other part of of ocular uh, diagnostics. Um, there's been a lot of research, you know, is the eye the new blood? In other words, you go get a physical, you get blood work done, um, and, and you, your doc can tell a lot about what's going on uh, based on the analysis of the blood work. Um, now there's a lot of research you can predict and look at other vascular issues by examining the eye uh, and things of the, But diabetes, clearly uh, diabetic retinopathy, things like that. Um, and we think AI can play a huge role uh, in, in that as well. So those are the four companies we have currently, and good examples of the kinds of things that that we look for to enhance uh, patient access to medtech.
1: Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Tim. And uh, I can see and feel that thread of the digital health and AI, and being being at the intersection um, of that. So thanks for providing color on that. I'm wondering if. Um, I like to explore a little bit. Is is that you know, as you know, being socialized in the United States, being educated, and then you know, being in leadership positions like yourself, there's a certain type of trained capacity that that actually we develop, and uh, so we end up having a certain amount of lingo. We have a certain amount of um, paradigm. Um, uh, Uh, focusing and as a result we see some things really well and exclude other things and sometimes we don't even know we're doing it because we're sort of like a fish in a bowl just because of sort of the uh, institutional uh just sort of uh you know imperative essentially what i'm interested in is is like what have you had to unlearn as part of your training to actually do well i mean obviously some some skill sets and some of your existence is transferred over well in terms of sort of the shop talk on it and sort of understanding the technology per se, but what have you had to unlearn as a result of trying to make team, uh, you know, or to optimize team that you didn't have when you were at a firm like Bard? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure if I'd call it
2: unlearning, it would, I would describe it more as kind of opening The aperture wider. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, for many years, um, at least in med tech, uh, you know, developing markets was a big growth driver for a lot of companies. I mean, if you were to look at um, any large, you know, med tech company, you'd see a US growth rate, you know, kind of in the mid single digits, depending upon what business the company focused on. Europe was probably a little bit lower than that. But these emerging markets, they'd be growing 20%, 25%, you know, 30%. As more of an emerging middle class was developing, they could afford more healthcare. Governments were evolving to deal with more aging population, NCD problems, what we talked about a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so the market was really developing more for med tech in, in some of these geographies. The question then, uh, I don't know who came up with this definition, but there was a definition that a lot of people in the industry would talk about um, the value segment of the market versus the premium segment of the market, right? And um, the value segment is the lower cost, um segment where the majority of the population in a lot of these geographies would lie the premium market would be the upper end um you know more of a developed world economic status people that could afford you know the kind of healthcare that you'd get in a developed market and that's where most med tech people focused there were a couple companies that experimented with well, the value segment has a lot more people. Maybe if we can't make products for that just because of our cost structure, but maybe when we acquired a company in these geographies in this value segment, you know, there's a way we could make money that way, and maybe even le- learn some things um, that could be, you know, uh, also utilized in, in more of a developed market. As I described, the kinds of things we look for at, at Team Fund. Um, those experiments didn't work that well. Those were not successful by those, those acquisitions, by those companies, um, uh, for a lot of different reasons. So most of healthcare, and I, I remember spending a lot of time trying to understand this premium versus value segment. Because you watch other competitors go buy companies in the value segment, You know your board's going to ask you, why aren't you doing that?
1: Right?
2: <laughs> yeah. um, So you better have an answer uh, at at some point. And it became very clear that the premium sector, at least for a public medical device company, was always a better place to invest in play. And, you, you know, think about it, human nature being human nature. If you're a doctor in, you know, one of these geographies and you're used to using, you know, technology that's not so great and then you get trained on stuff that's really good. It's not like a doctor says, oh, good. Now I know how to use all the good stuff. I'll just go back and start using the other stuff that's not, not so good. That's not the way people work. They all want to gravitate to the upper end and the better technology. And many of these cases, a lot of it's private pay, surprisingly, in these hospitals. So these clinicians that I've been in meetings, they say, hey, look, if it was my mother, I'd use this product. This one was FDA approved. It's a higher quality than what we have in the local market here. We don't know how long that's going to last, you know, kind of thing. So, again, not necessarily unlearning that, yeah, but opening up an aperture like, well, is there stuff that we would have missed in a public company, multinational company, because it's too small or because it was cheaper? We kind of dismissed it as the technology not being as good. You know, are there gems out there that are really good? It's just the entrepreneur saying, hey, this is what I know. This is the market I know. I'm going to start here. And it turns out there are a lot of those. But getting back to, but, you know, there's no, and this goes back, it's changed a lot even in four or five years. You know, there was no Silicon Valley uh, of, of venture capital firms in a lot of these geographies. So a lot of these companies with, or entrepreneurs with good ideas would, start with, you know, kind of family and friends kind of money, Um, most often less than a million dollars total in. Um, And then they need to go look for funding and they couldn't find it. So there was this gap, um, you know, kind of in that million to 3 million, million to 5 million range. Once once a company got up to the point where they needed, you know, 10 million, there was probably enough of an existing business there for a more traditional investor to take a look at and say, hey, yeah, there's something to invest in here. It's more than an idea. There's some traction, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we felt that funding gap was was important. Uh, And I mentioned the expertise gap uh, earlier as well. So we we have over 70 advisors now all over the world, med tech experienced people who we said, look, you, you know, this is a way for you to give something back. By the way, for Catherine and I, this is total, totally philanthropic for us. In fact, it's it's funny because you know you ask how we get we get involved with these companies. Part of what we try to do is bring in more investment, bring in other investors, get board members to understand what it takes to invest in in some of these kind of companies. Uh, and I remember I was on a phone call with a company based in india it was i don't know what time it was our time on the east coast of the u.s but it was like two o'clock in the morning or something like that and it got fairly contentious and i said you know i'm the only person on this call that's not making any money (laughs) and it's two o'clock in the morning my time so you you guys need to listen to this um or or not but this is what in our view this company needs so we've got you know, former CEOs. We we tried to do it by skill set, so we have quality and regulatory people, which are important in a regulated industry like medical yeah. devices. Commercial people, distribution people, manufacturing people, and what we ask for is you know a couple of weeks of their time a year to help these companies, um, and then we match them up either um, you know for a specific problem that they may have or a specific strategic challenge. Um, and or you know just a straight mentor kind of uh, thing. And from doing that, we, we now are about to launch a formal mentor program out of the nonprofit uh, and what we're calling a virtual incubator out of the nonprofit because, as I mentioned, we give grants to earlier stage companies there um, as opposed to the investments in the fund at the commercial stage level. One could argue that an earlier stage company needs even more help. Right. Because they can't afford to pay the expertise. So we want to bring our uh, advisors more into the uh, uh, on the grant side of things um, and expand the size of the grants uh, and be more specific. We've done them as competitions, kind of global health competitions, but focus maybe more specific in specifically in one certain area, get a couple of anchor donors to assist uh, in, in that. Um, we have a pretty good idea how much advisory time, uh, it will take just given that we've done it now with four different companies, uh, for, you know, four years. Um, and we don't pay those advisors, but we do cover their expenses. The nonprofit will cover the expenses of the, uh, of the advisor. So, um, so we're starting those two programs out of the nonprofit. Uh, we were going to start them last year, but COVID kind of pivoted the world to all things COVID rightfully so. Um. So we we decided to put those on the shelf until until this year.
1: So, do you? Uh, I'm curious about you. Mentioned that uh, team uh, primarily invests in commercial stage companies and doesn't necessarily take technology risk. Um, I'm curious of whether you guys have um, people that actually uh, take more of an they give you an inductive understanding on the culture. Like, do you have any anthropologists? Since 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 you're dealing in different cultural regions. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I wonder how much scalability and optimization of a technology, in terms of its ability to integrate, actually gets hung up not not because of seemingly efficiency reasons or for technically or for you know technical efficiency, but just because there's sort of a lack of understanding of cultural process.
2: Yeah, there have been cases where that has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, And and, you know the other the other part critical to medical devices and technology training is absolutely instrumental. I mean, if you think about a device versus a drug, you don't really need to train a doctor about chemistry Mm -hmm. of a drug, right? You just need to tell them here is how much you know the dosage, uh, the frequency, um, you know the strength of whatever the drug is, and when and, and what conditions. Uh, a patient would present where you should prescribe that kind of a drug, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with a device, you can't just give somebody kind of a a, a stent on an angioplasty balloon that you're going to stick through someone's femoral artery and say, "Here you go, just go do that." <laughs> and you'll be able to figure that out. So yeah. the training aspect is 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 a very different in in, in med tech. Um, so I, most of the technologies, I, I think, when you get into some more of the the female health reproductive health you get into some of the issues that you're talking about yeah um, but you know for the not for most non-communicable diseases you know if somebody has a heart attack you, you know you're having the heart attack whether you're in the you know the back lands in sub saharan africa or the inner city of you know Mumbai um, and and the treatment and diagnosis and so on and so forth are, are the same. So there's not as much of that um, but there can be I, I think maybe you get a little bit more of that as it relates to um, some of the lifestyle wellness apps, which are an important part like to treat diabetes right mm-hmm. um, you know how frequently uh, you know everybody that you and I know probably, you know, they've got some kind of a, you know, either a smartphone where they measure their steps or a Fitbit or an Apple watch or something like that. Um, so they're constantly kind of checking different health indicators on that, you know, trying to get that practice adopted in some of these cultures, um, is, is another thing, but, uh, but a, a lot of the world has some kind of a, of a smartphone these days. Sure. Um, so are You know, that again is part of a training educational thing um, as opposed to a cultural resistance.
1: Yeah, I want to, you know, I mean, sort of lots to talk about here, but I'm uh, also conscious of time a little bit. And I wanted to ask you when did you and your wife just, or how did you guys come to uh, on the monetary side of things and sort of financial need? Um, you mentioned that you're not getting paid as a part of um, a team or you're not incentivized on on, on the economics um, What kind of conversation did you and your wife have around sort of enoughness and two has it been has it been easy to sort of hold on to that that like you know that feeling of enoughness because you know I mean we're all like um, I mean if you're in the world of business I mean, that's a major motive right and i mean that's yeah. in some ways how we keep score of like who's who's doing what and how people are doing so i'm just uh, trying to understand sort of other metrics that you use or how like you've sort of uh massaged your existence as a result of taking uh, you know this position of enoughness as it relates to a team fund
2: yeah well as you you know we've Put team fund together, one of the things, you know, we were, I think age-wise, in our late 50s, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and having spent, you know, my wife had already made the decision to leave the, the everyday practice of law. Um, and I knew at some point in the next, you know, five, six, seven years, I was going to retire from a CEO role. And then you get into what are you going to do next because you're still relatively young and robust and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, the typical options, and I've got one of those, you go on corporate boards, that's one thing, you know, common profile of a CEO, you know, maybe you join a private equity group or, you know, nowadays that you start these special purpose acquisition committees or SPACs where, you, yeah. get, you know, the blank check companies, but those are all about making money for you, right? Um And we were lucky enough to be in a position that, you know, we were pretty fortunate and uh, that, you know, having to make more money wasn't a need of of ours, uh, fortunately. Um, But giving it back was. Mm -hmm. And um, so we felt, hey, let's do something. Uh, In fact, one of the things we learned on the listening tour um, from someone, a retired venture capitalist in the tech world, and they said, you know, If people have done well financially, they can write a check to a university or a hospital, and they can go on the boards of a hospital, university, whatever. But uh, most people don't find that as fulfilling. Um, If you can find something where they can take advantage of whatever the length of their careers were, 30 years, 20 years, 25 years, and they can pull together all that experience and expertise that they've developed, that made them successful in in their own fields and be able to apply that in a way of giving back, that's a lot more fulfilling to people. And and I would say, I think that's absolutely true. So, you know, we've been lucky financially. um, You know, this is kind of our way of giving back, but it's giving back in an area where this is what we did for 30 years. So it's a little bit of the same in terms of the work stuff. I mean, it's different. With three, you know, when I'm when I'm sealing the back of envelopes for the registration from a state to make <laughs> sure that the nonprofit, you know, I wasn't doing that as a CEO, but <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit different, you know, in that regard. But it's, it's you know, the same motivation, and and it's fun, and uh, um, you know, it's it's a little bit, it's a little more influence than directing which as a CEO, you get to tell people what to do often. Um, this mm-hmm. is not that, right? Because we don't, typically we only own five to 15% of these companies. So it's not like I can walk into the boardroom and just tell everybody what they should do, you know, going forward. So you got to influence them and convince them that, hey, maybe this is the best way to to move this company, et cetera, et cetera. But, but uh, you, you know, when you do it with your spouse, and we are the kind of people just naturally we're up around five, five thirty 30 every day. Um, you know, if team funded some, some issue or an email or something, we're talking about it by five thirty five. 35. <laughs> um, and, and uh, during the course of the day, you know uh, my wife kind of drives the impact side of things. So when we go to make an investment, she will do a research with the research team on the space And what kind of impact metrics are we going to try to measure for this particular technology or device? And then after we make the investment, our investment committee or the board actually approves the business case and the impact case. And then um, we negotiate a side letter with the portfolio company. Here are all the metrics they've got to report out on um, to us in in terms of the impact work. And then we, we actually do an annual report. Uh, and we do a fairly deep dive uh, of, of each of those companies and the impact that they've achieved. And we, and we don't subscribe, you know, impact and impact measurement's a big topic these days. And there's been a lot of generic, a lot of hard work, in fact, companies created around how do you measure impact. But our our, our view is with MedTech, you know, the way you would measure impact for those four companies that I described to you that we've invested in is all different. You wouldn't do it the same way right yeah so we we create a model almost around each company and each investment and then they report out to us um based on the metrics that we had agreed to
1: well tim um, thank you so much i was caught off guard by your five thirty 30 a.m uh, the reason you get up at or five o'clock i get up at five o'clock too but it's not for the same reasons i have a three-year-old who actually wakes up, <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we have a, we have a 10 month old puppy, so a
2: little there bit of go. the same reason, but we <laughs> it's kind of just the way our body clock works yeah,
1: yeah for sure. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for um, joining us here at the, the Journey to Impact podcast series. It's really wonderful to hear not only your story but uh, the story um, and the origin of the team fund as well.
2: Great. Thanks. Glad to participate.
0: Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.